the Passover season, even today, our Jewish friends share a meal as families. In fact, the Passover really is observed more on the home than it is in the synagogue or what they would call a temple. And at some point in the meal, and this is obviously comes into play and comes into practice with the development of a liturgy after long after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So there's a part of the meal where a child is assigned the responsibility, probably the pleasure, I'm not sure they may have to fight over it, I don't really know, but to go to the door and open the door and to see if Elijah has come. Because it is their belief that Elijah will come before the Messiah comes. Well, the same thing is true for, in a Christian context. Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, and we'll come to that in due course, speak of the coming of Elijah a second time. And that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord and on the occasion in which he turns the hearts of his people to himself. Now that will come to be important in the context of the ministry of the word this afternoon. We're beginning to study the life of Elijah and we came to see in the first sermon that Elijah comes on the scene in a a very uh, wicked period of time. The kingdom was divided. Jeroboam and Rehoboam had a falling out. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, they had a falling out. And the kingdom was split, not evenly in two, but it clearly was split And you have Judah in the south under Rehoboam, or technically Judah and Benjamin. And then you have the ten tribes in the north under Jeroboam. Jeroboam was, up until Ahab, the long in a list of disappointing and wicked kings. And Jehovah was begun to be worshipped through Baal or a calf, the image of a calf. By the time Ahab comes along, as we saw last week, Israel came to embrace full-blown idolatry. And Baal replaced Jehovah, and also Baal's consort, Asherah, was also worshipped. And we saw that last week, as we came to chapter 17 and verse 1, which introduces Elijah to us in that context. In fact, the first seven verses introduce that or introduce him to us. And he's an important figure, and we'll come to see this afternoon that he's an important figure because even the Lord Jesus draws a comparison between 
Elijah and John the Baptist, and more on that in a moment. But Elijah becomes extremely important because he rejects the idea and the notion of Jeroboam's synthesizing, kind of combining two um, religious systems. He also, though we don't notice it here, but it's pretty clear that he rejects a kind of compartmentalizing in which um, we live out our spiritual lives um, in this uh, one orbit, and then the rest of our lives we go about our business and do our things, do our stuff and go to work and all of the rest of it. And our faith has bears um, little import or has little import on what we do from day to day. But from Elijah, we learn the importance of standing against the world in which we live. That is the world or that world that is marked by rebellion and wickedness and idolatry. We live lives or we ought to live lives in contradiction and our speech and our confession ought to be in contradiction of what the world says. And so God raises up a man for the times, even as we'll see later that God raised up the man for the times, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in a secondary sense, he raises up his people as men and women for the times. But we continue with something of an introduction to the person of Elijah. And we saw last week, first of all, Elijah and his person, his character. We consider how he's introduced. And we noticed last week that, that much about Elijah is absolutely unknown. We really don't know anything about him. He was unheralded, unintroduced. We don't know anything about his parentage. We don't know where the town that's mentioned, where he lived. We, we don't know really anything even beyond where he lived or where this town was. Probably was a resident alien in the town. He had no patronage. Nobody was supporting him. Really, no, nothing. He's unheralded, unidentified. He's uninvited. Um, he just appears before Ahab, appears before the king without an introduction, without any kind of permission. He was uninhibited, unafraid, unvarnished, probably rough around the, the edges, unfiltered. He's an uncomplicated person, an uncomplicated personality. He delivered his message, and then he left. And then secondly, we noted what we called Elijah and his religion, his confession. His name means, my God, Jehovah is. That's the word order. And again, he was given this name probably in anticipation of what he might become or what he, they 
hoped he would become. He confessed the limitless God as opposed to a dead idol. This is the Lord, the living one. He confessed the lecturing God. God speaks through his servants. And what he speaks and what he says to Ahab really had been recorded earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 11 as a promise um, or a curse upon disobedience. And so he speaks, God speaks, and he speaks for God, and he speaks for God, the one who is a challenging God. But he also confesses the loving God. He's the God of Israel. He's the local God. He's present. He's face to face. And Elijah is standing before him. He's the listening God. That is, he hears Elijah pray, James chapter 5. And he's the lively God, the lordly God, the active God, the sovereign God. He's the one who is the God of the weather. And that was supposed to be Baal, remember? His prowess. Delivering the early rain and the latter rains. And God says, there's not going to be any rain. Because who really is the sovereign one? And who is the ineffective one? Well, we want to move forward and look at the last part or portion that I had in last week's um, outline. Again, we're introducing the person of Elijah. And as we'll come to see in the course of this study, that Elijah will transcend these particular verses. That is, he becomes important beyond his own period of time. His influence transcends that particular period and Elisha coming after him. He's, if you will, even more important as we look to the future. And so the third and final point in the very second sermon, but now the third, is Elijah and a comparison. And especially comparing Elijah with John the Baptist. Elijah appears, and I didn't do the counting, but someone that I trust very much did do the accounting or counting. Elijah appears some 30 times in the New Testament. And more often than not, in connection with John the Baptist. And so we want to see at least at the outset here, the comparison between these two and then something of the relationship that, that John the Baptist has with Jesus. So Elijah and a comparison with John the Baptist. And there's seven things. First of all, we may compare them in terms of what they wore their appearance, their adornment. How did they dress? 
Well, the appearance of both of them was rough. He was a man of the wilderness. Second Kings chapter 1 and verse 7 and uh, or yes, verses 7 and 8. There's a reference to John the Baptist. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he that came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. That was, that was how he appeared. That was how he looked. That was how he, how he appeared. But remember, John the Baptist also appeared Similarly, that he wore a rough coat and a leather belt around, around his middle and ate um, locusts and wild honey. He, he, honey he, was, he was a man of the wilderness. There was a, a man uh, in the 19th century, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, who fought in the Mexican-American War. And after the war, he, like many men, went to the mountains. His name was Jeremiah Johnson. Perhaps you saw the movie Hollywood made, but he was actually a real individual, and he went to live in the wilderness. Well, either one of these men or both of these men would be perfectly comfortable with a Jeremiah Johnson in the wilderness and up in the amount in the mountains. And so here was someone or two individuals who dressed for the occasion. And we think of cleaning ourselves up a little bit and dressing um, if when we go to work or even going to church or some of those things. These two men did not dress for the occasion. Or perhaps they did. You know where I'm going with that. Perhaps they did. Their rough exterior was a visual way of promoting their message, the message that both of them had to deliver. And so in terms of their, their adornment and their appearance and, and how they looked, it was rough. And then in terms of the community or the nation's assessment of them. In both cases, it was one of confrontation, of the collision with regard to religious perspective. And politically, and excuse me, and particularly, political power was something that was opposed by both of them. Elijah opposed Jezebel's control and her threatening of Elijah. And Herodias, Herod's wife, had been the wife of his brother Philip, and he took her from Philip. And the daughter of Herodias pleased Herod. Remember, she danced before him pleased him so much that he asked Herodias, what should she ask of Herod? 
And the response was the head of John the Baptist and he was too weak a man to say no. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. And so in both cases, they confronted the political system and the leadership of the day. Secondly, or thirdly rather, notice more clearly the persons who were antagonistic to Elijah or John the Baptist. Both of them were women. Women who, at one level or another, were in control at the royal court. Again, Jezebel and Herodias. And both of those kings were too weak to oppose their wives. Notice also the anointing of their successor. Both of them anointed their successors at the Jordan River. Remember that Elisha was anointed at the Jordan River with a, with a chariot, a fiery chariot that came down out of the sky. And when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him from above, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. In both cases, the heavens were opened. Elisha had asked for a double portion of what Elijah had. And a double portion was that which was granted to the firstborn in the family. And so he's asking to be the firstborn in succession succession to Elijah. But remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the only begotten Son of God, the one who kind of metaphorically receives a double portion, the privilege of the firstborn. And then think of their accomplishments, and especially thinking now more of Elisha than Elijah. But notice the spectacles, the miracles that were performed. Elijah performed five of them, Elisha ten, and Jesus many of them, including the feeding of the 5,000, something that Elisha, not 5,000, but Elisha did as well. Sixthly, both Elisha, and we now think of Jesus, both Elisha and Jesus had a forerunner, someone who went before them. Elijah with Elisha, John the Baptist with Jesus. 
And in both cases, their successors have come. Elijah was taken away and Elisha fulfilled or filled his sandals, if you will. And John the Baptist was slain by Herod. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and fulfilled that which John had preached. And the comparison then is made between John and Elijah. There are two places in the Gospels where that comparison is made. Someone asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. And then on another occasion, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. How how do you explain that in terms of biblical integrity? Well, I think the easiest way is that John didn't see himself that way. Now, are you John? Are you Elijah? No, of course not. There's a certain humility there. Well, he happens to be wrong. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. It just means that John the Baptist's assessment of himself was wrong. And of course, the assessment of Jesus was accurate in every way. John seemed unable to recognize who he was and his significance. He was indeed Elijah reborn, not literally, of course, but in the spirit of Elijah. And John, or rather Jesus, in one of the other Gospels, that was John one twenty one, but in Matthew chapter 11, he says, he is Elijah. Now, there's another connection that we need to mention. Number seven in this list. And it's not so much a comparison with John or Elijah and John. Both of them were forerunners. And when we come to the New Testament, we discover on the Mount of Transfiguration, we discover three figures. There's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And they're talking amongst themselves. At one of the Gospels, in Luke chapter 9, in fact, that's found in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke chapter 9. And in verse 31, the first two Gospels just say that they're talking to him, or they're talking amongst themselves. But in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, it says that they spoke about his death. So there's a connection between Elijah and John as forerunners to their ministry, but also Elijah 
And Jesus, as he speaks with our Savior about himself, not himself, Elijah, but about the Lord Jesus. Elijah comes to speak about the glory of the cross. Read the Old Testament and you sometimes wonder, well, what does this have to do with Christian faith? And what does this have to do with the gospel? But you don't have to look very far before you can see some connections, either prophecies or connections like this with Elijah and Jesus. That Elijah was, in a very real sense, or John the Baptist was, in the real sense, Elijah, who in this case promotes and proclaims the glory of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of thoughts. Some of this borders on what I said last week. But first of all, remember this or know this or learn this from the text, and that is that godly or godless times call for godly men. Now, we have to view these characters, these individuals, in both the Old and the New Testament, to be unique. And uh, they're not necessarily patterns, or if they become patterns, they're not patterns in the entirety of their life and their ministry. So, it's wrong, would be wrong to say, you can be an Elijah. There's only one. Well, actually, there's two Elijahs. Elijah and John the Baptist, but you understand what I'm saying. But you can become Elijah-like in confronting the culture in which you live as you have occasion and opportunity, especially as it comes to regard the cross and the gospel. As I said last week, never was Israel so blessed with a good prophet as when it was so plagued with a bad king. And we live in in a wicked age. And so never would our own place be blessed as when it is uh, in the context of being plagued with bad leadership, customs, ideas, and notions. Elijah was a unique man, as I also said, a man prepared by God for that specific hour. And again, we can never be all that he was, but we can be some of what he was. May God help us to have something of his spirit. And then this writer says, what could God do with Christians who had just a small measure of the qualities Elijah possessed. The Anglican Puritan Joseph Hall put it this way, God knows how to proportion men to their occasions. God knows how to proportion his people for the occasions in which we live. 
And so synthesis isn't the answer. Compartmentalization isn't the answer. But a certain level of confrontation is the answer if we learn anything from the life of Elijah. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be belligerent or confrontational with bad manners. But it does mean that we certainly can stand up, confront the culture, even the leadership in our culture that would promote ungodly things. And so not concession, but confrontation is Elijah's contribution, as it was John the Baptist's. Or as someone has said, the fashion of Scripture is proclamation, not dialogue. Understand the distinction, what, what dialogue means, sitting down and talking as if we can find some common ground. There is no common ground. And the sooner we realize that, the more faithful we'll be. And again, that doesn't mean we have to be confrontational in our manner. No one likes that, believer or unbeliever. And so the fashion of Scripture is always proclamation, not dialogue. Now there's a place for Q&A with Christian people, but there's no place for a kind of Q&A with unbelieving people. Elijah doesn't wait for a reply. You notice that? Doesn't wait for a reply, because there is no reply. There is no legitimate reply to Elijah's message. And I don't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, but so I'll do it again. But in, in, in the contrast with idolatry, God responds suitably. God has prepared his counter movement. We're not left to fend for ourselves. Ultimately, Baalism will not win the day. Now, it may look as if it does in the world in which we live, but the reality is it will not. And why? And here's something I didn't say last week, but I think probably the most important thing. And that is Elijah's successor has come. And it's not just Elisha, but if we think of Elijah connected to John the Baptist, the successor to John the Baptist was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Elijah knows that, certainly by the time of the transfiguration, because that's the very thing that he's talking about with Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. His And so as we speak to others, it's not to dialogue and to sort of give and take, but rather to proclaim, proclaim the truth of God as it is in Jesus Christ. That there is only one suitable, necessary Savior. 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the and and the that which is all that is contrary to that leads to death and destruction. So we can be thankful for Elijah, for John the Baptist. They're not the last chapter, but Christ is. And what he has done for guilty sinners. Let us pray.